The writer Gustave Flaubert suggested that if you look at anything closely enough, you would find it interesting. I reckon that's about right. Take something as mundane, as fundamentally bland as my computer. I'm glaring at it right now from the other side of the room. I don't yet have electricity here in the train carriage, so the computer doesn't get as much of a workout as you might think it should, given that I'm a writer. And right now, its battery's dead, so it's currently sitting purposelessly on the deck, an ugly, useless paperweight, like a large shell that's been washed up on some shore and collected by a child. But I shouldn't be so unkind. That machine has suffered for as long as it's been with me. It's not that I've had it for so many years, but I've forced it into some unfortunate situations in that time. I remember travelling with it a while back. On one occasion I went for a hike over a glacier and had nowhere secure to put it back at the hostel. So I took this computer with me. It was wrapped up in my backpack as I slipped and slid my way down steep paths covered in ice. It survived that. But further along in the same trip, in some mountains on the Russian border, I yet again had no choice but to walk for about a week with the laptop as part of my kit. Several days in, I pulled myself over a rocky outcrop and found myself face to face with a ferocious sheepdog. I fell backwards with a big old thud. And it was no surprise when I eventually checked on the computer and found it had an enormous crack all over the screen. And then there was the ordeal of trying to turn the touchscreen function off. It was only then that I started to wonder about all the bits and bobs that the computer was made from. This thing with which I was spending so much time, like a weaver strapped into his loom. Each day I caress it carefully as I work on essays or stories or scripts. But I have little idea about the raw materials that allow it all to happen. Where do they come from? Who has handled them? What does it really cost? There's something unpleasant about how poorly we understand the things we use every day. It's part of the alienation that certain philosophers speak about. To share our homes with items that we do not know. If we could figure out a better way, we might be able to say the lives of strangers are connected with ours through these things. If we could have some semblance of awareness, a sense of contact with whomever assembled the chips of silicon or packed my computer into its box even. But we don't have any real connection with these people. They work somewhere out of sight, unnamed, unidentifiable. Laptops land in our lives as if ex nihilo, but the truth is they have probably been handled, in part at least, by countless individuals, all of whom have their own thoughts and dreams, which we might like to think about as part of the story of these objects. But it takes some imagination. Archaeologists assure us that the trade of objects can tell us about most of human history. They're thinking of, like, the relics of Irish monks found on Icelandic beaches, those bells and crucifixes which speak of great ancient nautical journeys. Or the beads of Baltic amber that made their way down river systems towards the ancient Greeks in exchange for jugs of wine, 
shards of which are found along the Seine or Danube or Rhine. In some respects, it is true that although dreams are the secret and invisible force that compels much of the world's activity, objects can represent human ambitions as well, if you know how to read the hidden language within them. The same is true here in Tasmania as well, where the original inhabitants kept a very distinct set of objects. It was simple equipment, made for travellers, whittled down over generations and adapted to changes in climate. The Aboriginal people here perfected their toolkit against the conditions of life on this island. Vignettes of how it was before Europeans came here can be intuited in sculpted bits of chert, or quartzite, or charcoal residue and burnt shell and bone, shell necklaces, containers made of bull kelp, or artworks carved into sandstone or painted on cave walls. These speak with some gravitas, even if you believe, like I do, that equally important enigmas remain buried in the past. The whispers, the mantras, the gestures and dance moves which may well be lost in an abyss of history. Europeans tended to carry a fair bit more with them on their distant travels. Amidst their sizeable cargoes, British and French visitors to the Antipodes brought all sorts of trinkets to exchange with indigenous populations as they went. These were often cheap things that they thought might amuse or placate the locals. Mirrors and marbles that maybe would seem as miracles to such curious people. On one occasion, French sailors gifted an Aboriginal clan a bottle of brandy. The Frenchmen were aghast as they watched the bottle immediately dashed against the rocks and smashed to pieces, their precious grog soaking away into the soil. For the first Tasmanians, the bits of broken glass were of much more use than the harsh liquid inside. It was more effective than granite or quartz for sharpening spears. Glass takes a bloody long time to break down, so those shards may still be found on a beach somewhere in southern Tassie. And yes, they tell a fascinating story, if you know what you're looking for. So what will be made some day of this laptop with its cracked screen? Some historians call this the age of the Anthropocene, where layers of our garbage are being laid down like geological strata. My computer, whatever it's made from, will likely end up buried like all the rest. No doubt someone someday will go mining through landfill to pull out materials that we once thought were useless, but that have later become scarce or turned out to be employable in some way we never suspected. My laptop. A slate capable of recording countless words, bashed up and day by day becoming more obsolete may later be repurposed. Though as what I can't begin to imagine.
my dad had nicknamed me Claude the Crow, because apparently whenever we went for an excursion anywhere, I'd end up with my pockets full of bric-a-brac, objects I'd found along the way. These were usually the flotsam and jetsam of whatever environment we'd been in. Kookaburra feathers, sea sponges, a chunk of bitumen. In the gutter outside the shop in the country town where I went to school as a six-year-old, I found a tremendous treasure. A plastic dinosaur. A Styracosaurus, to be specific. One of the great finds of childhood. But I don't know how many other animals, crows or otherwise, actually find themselves so eagerly accumulating things. How many marsupials or lizards are hoarders. The odd bird will collect random objects to help construct a nest, but that's about all I can think of, really. No other critter appears to have the same acquisitive habits as us. None of them frequent garage sales or find themselves on Antiques Roadshow. I think back to about a year ago when people began fighting each other in the supermarket over toilet paper and baked beans. It was interesting to observe how many people, when in a panic, had an instinct to buy as much as possible and cache it all, just in case. In a time of uncertainty, things seemed to have the capacity to give some comfort. Nowadays I seem to have the opposite attitude. I no longer fill my pockets on journeys, but tend to want to thin out the amount of things I have with me. I live in a small shack, the old train carriage which doesn't fit much into it, so there's little encouragement to become a collector. Unless you count my library, to which I add compulsively almost every week, constructing elaborate piles of literature that line every wall. But of course, books are objectively valuable things, right? Anyway, a lot of stuff in here had been left behind by previous occupants. If you're not careful, rubbish can become part of the furniture, a permanent fixture. I have heard of a guru who gives guidance on how to declutter your life. She tells you to hold each object in your hands and test whether it brings you a feeling of happiness or not. But I've rarely needed to make such a careful examination of these leftover belongings. Unless it's a book, I'm pretty much ready to piff everything out. So few are the objects I find myself actually using these days. On the other hand, it's also true that we often feel strong connections with the objects with which we live. It's perhaps strange that the texture of everyday items can become burdened with nostalgic feelings. That something as simple as a specific teaspoon or a tote bag or a scarf and bring up strong sentiments, and bring about recollections so clear that they're almost visceral. As someone recently said to me, an object can be a sort of external memory, and such memories, made physical, need to be treated carefully, for they're a big part of who we are. I remember vividly the bowl in which we kept our sugar years ago when I was a kid. It was a hideous bloody thing, really. Plastic, a lurid shade of orange, with a design like the spokes of a wheel on its lid, the lines raised like sharp ridges. And did I mention it was a really ugly hue of orange? 
I'd love to know why my parents accepted this awful vessel as our sugar bowl and never replaced it, but so it was. And no doubt they didn't really notice it, not after the first week or so. However, they went about getting it in the first place. So much has been forgotten, but I remembered this sugar bowl for many years. And eventually one afternoon at a friend's place, I caught a glimpse, a flash of saturated mandarin. They owned an exact replica of the plastic sugar bowl we'd had in childhood. At first I was excited. My nostalgia flared up like a rash. It was like I was suddenly back in my old kitchen. I also remembered my favourite mug and the feeling of stirring a spoonful of sugar into a hot milo in it. I thought of mum's work preparing meals, such as the sound of a meat tenderizer, like an archaic instrument of torture resounding throughout the house as she belted a slice of steak. I thought of the configuration of the shelves, the sugar bowl's position with the boxes of tea and coffee, and indeed I remembered the spice rack next to it, glass jars filled with substances that were mysterious to me and which seemingly never got used in our household cuisine. Years later as an adolescent, I looked at the expiry dates on the ground cardamom or Hungarian smoked paprika and realised that they'd been bought before I was born and never opened. I saw I knew what an unpleasant object it was and my enthusiasm turned to despair. Why had such an unattractive thing been mass-produced? I could only think of it as a waste of a different kind. Why do we make so much stuff of such poor quality? Why do we allow ourselves to become surrounded with such ugly things when we could have belongings that are simple and beautiful? Some of the past squatters in this train carriage have moved on without taking all their worldlies with them. Their near-empty shampoo bottles, or their old pairs of walking boots and daggy homemade decorations, broken fittings, even leftover tins of pineapple slices and jars of sour cherries. Every week I clear a bit more out, to make more space for myself and for my own memories, my own life. But all too often I find something that obviously has a story behind it. I wonder about this Claude the Crow character, to whom I was compared in childhood. Even though he knew he needed to fly, he must have become burdened by all the belongings that passed through his life. Such a sentimental animal must struggle to travel light, so heavily laden he'd be, carrying so many objects with him, so many reminiscences and so many regrets.
I am absolutely shithouse at shopping. It can take me months to sort out the purchase, even of something I earnestly need. I walk into a store, look around, see the item I'm after, and walk out without buying it. Usually takes three or four visits to a shop to actually get around to buying something, even if I have it clearly written down on a shopping list. And most of the time I just get the help of a friend, otherwise it'll never happen. In Kurdistan I stayed in an apartment next to an unusual makeshift market where depressed looking vendors sold the most eclectic odds and ends I've ever seen. Of much of the merchandise I can say little. Couldn't even tell you the purpose of the majority of it. One fella had a pigeon and a single shoe for sale. And after much deliberation I went and bought some socks from a man whose hands could not stop shaking. He had sets of them wrapped up in plastic, maybe a dozen pairs to each packet. We made a confused exchange of gestures and I inadvertently nearly wound up with a whole case of them. It was more socks than you could poke a stick at, but I was always awkward when it came to bargaining, let alone when dealing with a merchant with whom I had no common language. I still have those socks, although they don't have much wear left in them. It's one of the few souvenirs I've obtained over the years, though. Well, there's the elephant keyring I was given by an Indian friend, but I don't use that. And the same goes for the string of plastic prayer beads I have hung up by the doorway of the train carriage, which a hotel owner on the Caspian Sea gifted to me along with an Islamic prayer I'm yet to recite. Some things come in handy. For example, the bottle opener that I got from a brewer in Flanders. It gets a bit of a workout. And there are occasional objects that I regret not buying. Like, in a big box mall in the Californian desert, I saw a shop that sold cowboy paraphernalia. And if only I'd had the money, I'd have grabbed that three-piece suit made of cheap leather. Sometimes late at night, I suspect that outfit might have changed my life. (laughs) I walked through the Grand Bazaar with a tiny backpack over my shoulders, about to go on a long hike. I wasn't likely to add much at all to my supplies, but I did buy a journal. And over the course of the next few months, page after page became detached from the spine, and since then it's been quite an ordeal to keep all those writings together. But it made it home, albeit wrapped in a plastic bag. And I suppose that might count as a souvenir as well. Yet I guess the truth is that As sentimental as I am, I've never needed to bring home keepsakes from overseas. The word souvenir suggests that we use these objects to save certain experiences in our minds, but the fact of the matter is that I've preserved my memories in notebooks such as that one I bought in the bazaar. I seem to prefer the chance to purge myself of some possessions. Before going away one year, I realised I was wearied by the burden of having so much stuff. So I took everything I owned, put it in a pile on the porch of my share house, and sold the lot for a few dollars. If I couldn't flog it, I gave it to charity. It was only then that I felt I could tear up my rental agreement, quit my job, and buy a ticket to India. It was as though I was released or no longer possessed.
A few weeks later, I found myself in a tiny room in another country, sleeping on a straw mat alongside a couple of other blokes, strangers who'd invited me in. We cooked meals together on a single gas ring, took it in turns using the squat dunny, and then they went to work while I went out exploring. These men worked hard for little in a landscape that offered no free lunches. I'd merely stumbled into their life for a time and learned what it was to experience the flip side of excess. To be without what you need is of course the worst side of that scenario. Indeed, it was difficult to explain to these fellas why I'd chosen to pass some time living with less than usual, like the strange holy men of their religion, but without the relevant beliefs. In India, I learned a useful word, Jugad. It's a word that describes any sort of improvised engineering, quick fixes and inventive solutions when you really don't have the resources you need. So, for example, power lines that are kept upright through a makeshift bit of bamboo scaffolding? That's Jugad. So to a car that's been rejigged with a tractor engine. I liked the word, and I like seeing Jugad employed. It might be born out of poverty, but it's as rich in creative energy as poetry is. And generously, those fellas sent me on with another souvenir, one that's lasted me nearly ten years now, and perhaps the most useful of them all. A woolen blanket, charcoal green and grey, which I used to keep me warm on winter nights in their desert town, and sometimes in the train carriage in winter as well. The style of blanket is called a razak, and I once dreamed that it was wrapped around my shoulders as I was transported through the night on a motorbike. The razak unraveled and expanded as I sped through rural districts, continuing to grow and change in colour, and as I passed pedestrians it was as though they too were being wrapped up in the blanket, even if only briefly. And I looked at the person riding the bike as well, I could only see the back of their head, but it seemed that the blanket was draped around them too. In some ways, I have thought of that as somehow symbolic of a special gift. It has a way of being shared with more than one person, and even the person who gives it can get something from it as well. Alchemists believed they could find more precious objects hidden within the composition of basic, banal things. That with the right recipe you might, say, turn a lump of granite into gold. And as a poet I can sympathise, because I have seen how the work of the human imagination transforms the meaning of everything we come across. As the cliché tells us, 
trash and treasure can be interchangeable, depending on how you see it. And likewise, for some of us, rock may well have a greater worth than gold. A woman once took me to a place called the Cathedral of Junk, somewhere in Texas. It was as you might expect, a ramshackle house that had piles of stuff all throughout it and in the backyard. There were old TVs, street signs, dolls, ID cards, trolleys, car parts, materials, number plates. In one sense, it could have been an homage to engineers, miners, metallurgists, factory workers and inventors. But it was not. It could even have stood in gratitude to consumers everywhere, to insidious capitalism. But I think it was intended to be its opposite. A man I took to be the owner of the cathedral, the high priest, I guess, was spouting off a speech about the de-evolution of modern humans, gesturing around himself. He made reference to the wisdom of the ancients. They were smart as shit, and then carried on with his self-deprecating sermon about our species today. I wondered what my friend Chelsea was thinking. She had taken off her jumper halfway through our tour of the cathedral. Underneath she wore a swimsuit, and I saw that she had a tattoo of a 2B pencil on her shoulder. She had nodded along to the message spoken by the bloke in his temple of trash. And it really doesn't take a great stretch of the imagination to come to a similar conclusion, looking at what we do to our landscapes, to the biosphere, to pretty much anything. We left the cathedral and went down to the river for a dip. And there, as we waded through bindweed and drifted into the current, Chelsea quietly said it seemed far too easy to come up with sentimental theories about ancient civilizations and demonise ourselves. And yes, it's useful and it's honest to talk about what we're doing to our environments, to criticise ourselves. But what if what we are living is along the lines of whatever everyone has wanted all along? Control, safety, access to shelter and nourishment. What if it's only in our generation that we've realised that there's a price to pay for pursuing these to excess, to pushing their limits, to becoming addicts? Obviously we've reached capacity when it comes to growth, she said. We have made our lives so big that the world just can't hold them. And it's hard work to shrink them, to take back the gains we've made. We live such fun lives, she said. You and I, at least. Surely the ancients would have wanted this. But I can't really talk, she said. I'm a lucky bitch. Chelsea smiled and dived down and disappeared under the water. It was a conversation I often thought about when I visited the tip shop in Hobart a vast cavern of cast-off items out of which I sometimes emerged after some hours, disoriented and dizzy, with my eyes struggling to adjust to daylight. It was as if I'd come out of a cellar after a wine tasting. Or it was like the tip shop were a temple, a place to worship past fads and fashions, an homage to tastes that had changed. There you could still buy cassette tapes, paper maps, and all the odds and ends from which houses were once made. 
I would of course make a circumnavigation of the bookcases. This was ritualistic, always taking place in a specific direction like the Stations of the Cross. In fact, buying second-hand books might be the closest thing to a religious act in my life. And the superstition has sometimes paid off. I remember once walking into that tip shop with a zealous faith that I was going to find a certain novel by Roberto Bolaño. And, I'll have you know, on that very day, for sale for one dollar, I did. And on top of that, there were candles, curtains, posters, ornaments, sheets of corrugated iron, lengths of timber, jackets and dresses, works of art, old pianos, mugs with German poems on them, all sorts of curios. At first glance, it may seem less exotic than the merchandise brought on caravans down the Silk Road. But in fact, the Hobart tip shop, despite its position far from the centres of global geography, may well have had items that were somehow related to every corner of the world. And these were the items retrieved from amongst the trailer loads of all that was being chucked out around the city. Behind it all was the landfill, a dismal scene dug into a gully, circumferenced with eucalyptus bush, with seagulls and ravens roving over the site like pirates. They could take what they liked, but they never grabbed too much. And this past spring, someone torched the tip shop. A pointless arson attack that burnt out most of the building. I naturally thought first of the books that were lost. They were probably burned before anything else. Although some of them were so damp and mouldy they might have survived the blaze barely singed. I suppose I felt a vestige of the regret that the librarians of Alexandria must have known. But here in our own charity cornucopia, there was more. There were the racks of clothes, mostly made of synthetic materials that would have combusted into toxic fumes. The wooden frames, fence posts and lattice work that are now reduced to ash. Plastic toys that melted into mucilaginous sludge. And perhaps even the metal objects. Cutlery, say, saucepans which if the fire got hot enough would have taken on another form, as if they'd been put through a forge. All this stuff was diminished by a sinister form of alchemy into a pile of raw material that was less than useless. That pot is bent and battered, with black soot all over it. It's only big enough for a single meal, but it belongs to a bachelor after all. And how many examples of camp cuisine have I whipped up in this over the years? Couscous with a couple of veggies, pasta with mushrooms, 
Deb with butter and dried dill tips. It was bestowed upon me by an old bushy, who had used it for a good while himself, fairly often, on solitary missions into the northeastern forests in search of the thylacine, or on fishing trips down a certain river valley, or up at his shack on Bass Strait. Then he just handed it over to me. On my first trip, I think, I, I took it across the plateau, six days of mashed spuds and improvised ratatouilles. And since then it's rattled around in my backpack across a score of countries. One of my favourite meals was one I cooked in it in a hostel in Slovenia that didn't have a kitchen. And at a food and drink festival in Hobart, I squatted on a busy footpath and performed a comedy cooking show with my old Billy as a prop. And now I was leaning as far as I could out of my tent to light the small cup of methylated spirits sitting in its base and put the pot half full of water on top. I was in the outer Hebrides, and it was pissing down with rain. The billy was safely out of the way of the flaps of my tent. Luckily I have long arms, so I could retreat back into my bright yellow shell and wait until I could hear the water bubbling away. In the meantime I looked about me, In the tiny coffin of a tent that I'd lived out of for much of the past six months were all of my worldly possessions, more or less. A few clothes were strewn about. Merino t-shirts I'd gotten as a work uniform. A pair of stripy leggings spotted with scorch marks from sitting too close to a campfire. A black beanie I'd found in the bush. A pashmina scarf I'd bargained for somewhere in southern Europe and the woolen jumper that I'd bought at an op shop 15,000 kilometres away. And there were books I'd scrounged along the way, notepads encrusted with scribbles, and a small remnant of victuals. And of course I was all wrapped up in my sleeping bag on a blow-up mat that generally sighed and deflated several times throughout each night. My backpack was a giant canvas sack with a capacity of a hundred litres, which is to say that if I left it out in that splendid Scottish weather I'd found, it would be overflowing in about half an hour. It took up most of the space in the salubrious confines of my tent, and I had often thought of it as a companion, like a largish woman I'd taken as a wife. Once I had slept and hopefully woken to a clearer morning, I'd loaded up again, Everything had been furled up and folded and stuffed into that bag. And I'd hoisted up on my waist and walked several hours to the harbour. And my journey through the Outer Hebrides would be over. Certain weather reminds me that I am also a passing phenomenon. A bag of matter that will someday be susceptible to decomposition. On such occasions, it's nice to have something at hand like this old billy of mine something that'll probably outlast me. We can be pretty casual about treating our objects as disposable. We reckon we can replace anything so long as we have the money. But I believe it's useful to acquaint ourselves with at least a few things that will live beyond us. Heirlooms. Hardy old tools, wooden carvings, instruments, artworks, jewels, and billy pots like the one I've got. Why not? 
because even as I squatted in that tent in the Scottish Mizzle, I knew that I'd be making countless cups of tea with it in the future. And so it is. Years later, I still have the same setup, and I took it camping just the other day. Still gets the job done. Long may it live. But back to Scotland. I heard the water boiling and plucked a tea bag out of a Ziploc bag and put it in my enamel cup. Then reached out and carefully retrieved the billy, carefully poured the contents of the pot into my cup. It leached through the leaves and a red elixir formed before my eyes. I let it steep for a good five minutes. In the meantime, I meditated on the therapeutic experience of the perfect cuppa. Then I withdrew the tea bag and added a squirt of condensed milk. Oh, come on, it's a treat I only let myself have in the bush. <laughs> the flame burnt out. I packed the billy away, its pots layered like a babushka doll. Spoon and lighter and spondonicles all stowed away, everything tied up with a heavy band. It went into the tent as well, another piece of merchandise for the strange and confined market I'd set up alongside my sleeping bag. Steam rose from the cup as I rested on the floor of the tent, and I opened up one of the tatty paperbacks, knowing I'd probably be forced to relinquish it before my flight in a few days' time. If I remember correctly, it was a comic novel. And it really got me going. I sat there rocking with laughter at one or another witticism. No doubt if anyone had been outside the tent, they'd possibly have thought it was occupied by a lunatic. Although really, they'd have to be mad to be outside the tent. Because the weather was that shite out there. Even the hardiest Hebridean would have been rugged up inside by a peat fire. But there I was snug in my sleeping bag, tightly encased in my tiny tent, entertained and surrounded by objects that I'd travelled so far with that they felt like old friends. Which is why it was all the more a shame when I leaned back to laugh some more and kicked over my cup of tea, splashing it everywhere, over every last thing that I owned. <laughs>